Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. LiquidChurch.com, living water for a thirsty world. All right, well, we're going to have some fun with this one. I'm Pastor Tim. I want to welcome you, all of our campuses, to our brand new series, Heat, in which we are exploring the God's honest truth about love and sex. In fact, the big reason we are doing this series, really, is because I believe we live in a time of unprecedented sexual confusion in a lot of ways. There's a lot of confusing ideas about what makes a man or woman desirable, where sex actually belongs in a relationship, how it's supposed to work, and really what God thinks of the whole deal. And the reality is this, I'd suggest our culture has three competing views of sexuality, really three perspectives that most people adopt when it comes to the issue. And the first is that sex is God. The first one says sex is God. It's a religion in itself. It's to be worshipped. And we spend a tremendous amount of time, energy, investing our time, really pursuing it at all costs. Uh, case in point, pornography now is a $60 billion a year industry. And that is all the revenues of the National Football League, Major League Baseball, NBA, NHL combined. It actually dwarfs it. About 12 billion of that is actually from Americans. And in fact, that's more than the revenues of ABC, CBS, NBC. That's the total cost on pornography, literally worldwide, $60 billion a year. Now, that's evidence that the obvious, we live in a hypersexual culture. And when I say that, I mean we have our own gods and goddesses, right? Brad and Angelina. We have our own sacred texts, right? I went to the, uh, the newsstand, you know, research here, Cosmo here, uh, sex masterclass, make any man better in bed. Cosmo sex experiment, uh, what, what it feels like for guys, you know, trigger arousals, all this kind of stuff. Our own sacred texts with tips and techniques that we use to actually, we're going to enhance our life and really nail it. Guys, you know, we have our own Maxim GQ. But the point is this, guys. Sex as a religion in many ways in America is live and thriving. We have our own denominations, right? Well, I'm straight or I'm gay or I'm bi. We actually define ourselves by our sexuality. And here's the deal. This isn't new. In many ways, this is a return to New Testament times. In fact, if you remember in the, in the book of Corinthians, the city of Corinth, actually in ancient Greece, they actually had at the center of the city, it was called the Temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love or Venus. And they actually had more than a thousand temple prostitutes who served as priestesses in the Temple of Corinth. So in other words, when you went to church, part of the worship service was actually engaging in sexual relations with temple prostitutes. So it, it was part of the actual, it was like going to church, it was like going to a strip club. And some of you guys are like, wait, where's this church? Is this, is this like Hoboken? Where is this? And uh, the sex is God. It's a religion in the highest goal and point of life. And the mantra of that perspective is indulge it. Now, on the opposite side of the spectrum is the perspective that says, no, 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 sex is gross. This is nasty. This is dirty. This is not something to be spoken of. In fact, right now, you're very uncomfortable with what's going on here because you're like, this is inappropriate and offended. I can't even believe you're bringing this up in church. I see you. You're like, oh, and you're not alone because what happened is in the early church, the pendulum swung back the other way. Check this out. When the early church fathers, Tertullian, he was actually said to prefer the extinction of the human race than to, se- than to acknowledge uh, sexuality, even between a husband and a wife. Origin about 200 AD, he was so, uh, he, he considered that sexual desire was so evil that he went and took a knife and he actually castrated himself. This was one of the early church fathers. Finally, Jerome in around 347 AD, he actually threw, he would throw himself into thorn bushes whenever he felt, you know, desire for a woman as a way to kind of like cause that pain to like chase away his lustful desire. 
My hope is we're going to find a little alternative to that technique during our series heat. But it reached its apex, that, that kind of gross view of sexuality in the church during Victorian times. Check this out, kind of interesting. It was the, the, a woman's legs, curvy legs was considered very curvaceous and like would it arouse illicit desire in men. And so what happened was people began wearing long gowns so you couldn't see a woman's legs. It went all the way to the point where a table's curved legs were thought to cause men to stumble. So they began putting cloths over tables so that man wouldn't see a, you know, table leg and get aroused or something. That's where we get tablecloths from. And I'll just back up and suggest if you have a problem with table legs, you may need professional help, okay? This series isn't going to help you. But that's what happened. And it comes from this. If you come from a very strict or traditional religious background, you relate to this. Sex is something you cover up. It's not something you talk about, cer- certainly not in church. Maybe for you uh, growing up, you were told even if you get married, it's really for procreative purposes only. Or, and if you're married, sex is something you endure, certainly not enjoy. That's the mantra of this perspective is endure it. But the third view that I want to counter with is really the biblical view that sex is a gift. In other words, it's not gross to be avoided. It's not God. Rather, it is a gift from God. To be, to be treasured, to be enjoyed, to be celebrated freely and frequently within the context of marriage. And some of you guys are like, hoorah, go. Sex is God's idea. It's actually his invention. And it's not perverse, but it's to be prized and really protected and celebrated with passion and mutual pleasure between one man and one woman. And the biblical view, guys, is really that it is both physical and spiritual. It's much more than mere body parts, but it is soulful. It is a sacred act of self-giving and sacrifice that, in fact, in its highest form, is a living symbol of the love and commitment that Jesus Christ has for his church. That's the metaphor. That's the way it's used in the New Testament. The idea that God laid down his body as a loving sacrifice for us. And and now we give our bodies as an unrestricted gift to our spouse and serve one another through our sexuality. That's the biblical view. And the mantra is not indulge it, not endure it, but enjoy it. Can we say that? Enjoy it. Enjoy it freely and frequently as one of God's greatest gifts to his married children. Now, here's the deal. I don't know which one of these perspectives um, frames your view of love and sex. I grew up in a church environment where the sex is gross was kind of the unspoken message. Um, we never talked about it in church, and if the subject did come up, there was actually one very, very clear message. No! <laughs> no! Never! Don't do it! And if you do, shh, don't, just don't the kids, don't let them right here. That's how I grew up. You didn't talk about that kind of thing. So you can imagine my surprise when one Sunday morning, my, my friend, my buddy Paul Norton, called me over after Sunday school class. And he said, dude, come here. He goes, you got to read this. I was like, well, you know, it looks like a Bible. And he goes, no, no, no. And he looked around like he was holding this nudie mag or something like that. He goes, come here. And he pulled me into a classroom. He shoves a Bible in my hands. And I looked in there and there it was, Song of Songs, chapter seven, verses seven and eight. And he goes, read it. And I was like, your stature is like that of the palm and your breasts like clusters of fruit. And I was like, what? He goes, just keep going. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. And I'm looking at this for like a second. And then I look up at Paul and he goes, he's not talking about fruit. And he was so, and I was just like, 
What? I thought it was a trick Bible. Literally, I was like, where, where, did, where did you get this? So I spent the rest of the adult service reading through the Song of Songs for myself, checking it out. I remember telling my brother on the way home, telling him in the backseat of the car, going, it's true, dude. There's a sexy book in the Bible. It's true. And let me tell you, when you're 12 years old, that little discovery changes your attitude about Sunday school about 180 degrees. The problem is this. For the next 12 years, I never heard another word about it. Never heard one sermon preached on the Song of Solomon, even though here it is, smack dab in the middle of God's word. I want to invite all of our campuses to do something very risky right now and take your Bible and open there with me. Would you do that? Go ahead and take your Bible. It's on page 470. (laughs) Some of you guys already have the Bible. I've never seen such excitement about Bible study here. But uh, this is called the Song of Songs, and it was written by King Solomon. And this is really where we're going to be grounding our series on love, sex, and relationships. And uh, here's the deal. Um, This this is a pretty scandalous book. It is PG-13 in a lot of parts. But parents, I want to give you a little disclaimer uh, here. This week is going to be totally appropriate for kids. Totally appropriate. Um, nothing that I wouldn't want my own six-year-old daughter to hear. Um, but in the, in the weeks to come, this is going to culminate in a very candid portrayal uh, and description of sexuality and lovemaking. And we're going to get into it. No tablecloths, okay? No shame. But I'm going to give you a heads up when that's going to be, okay? So you don't need to be getting all nervous. As some of our parents probably right now are just like, oh boy, here we go. In fact, on the other hand, maybe you want your kids here to counterbalance all that they're exposed to in school, television, the internet, and counteract it with actually a biblical portrait of godly sexuality, because that's why he put it right here in the middle of scripture, and that's what this book is about. It is not crude by any means. In fact, it is beautiful. It is poetic. And literally, this is a collection of Hebrew love songs that King Solomon exchanged with his wife during their courtship, dating, engagement, all the way to being married. And here's the deal. It's not just about sex. It is about sex in context. And what I mean by that is it presents this kind of full-body picture of what it actually means to develop mature, three-dimensional relationships that are not plastic and God-honoring intimacy with the opposite sex. So here's the deal. If you're single, this is going to give you a roadmap for relationships that actually can go the distance, get out of the starting gate. If you're dating, um, it's going to teach you how to cultivate that romance so that it doesn't, doesn't just pulse with you know passion and heat, but actually integrity too, the foundation of a relationship. And if you're married, like me, this is for you. Because marriage is hard, yes? Marriage is very hard. And keeping the, the embers of love and passion kind of, you know, kind of kindling is a huge challenge. But can I just say this? God does not intend for marriage to go flat, to fizzle out. As we're going to see all throughout scripture, God is a passionate lover. We're made actually in his image. And his desire is actually that Christian marriage be electric. <laughs> Imagine that. Something that actually sizzles. It sparks with intensity and fire throughout the years. So if you're married, you're in a rut, you need a little jump start, you take notes because Solomon's going to put a little spice back in your marital boudoir, okay? So you take notes. Let's read this together. We're going to look at our first chapter today. And if you look, you'll actually see the headings of who talks here. See the heading lover? That's King Solomon. He was the son of, of King David and Bathsheba. He actually ruled over Israel during its glory days, built the temple there, was one of the richest men in the history of civilization, considered the wisest too. But catch this, he was also a romantic. Solomon wrote over 1,000 songs during his lifetime, and this is called the Song of Songs. Translation, the mother of all songs. That's literally what he's talking about here. And essentially it's this, 
under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God caused King Solomon as a young king to write and describe the story of his love, the courtship and marriage to a young peasant girl that he spies one day in his vineyards. And uh, she is called the Beloved. Do you see that title in there? She's the girl, the, y- the young Jewish girl. May have been from Shunem. That's actually a, a town in uh, about 60 miles north of, of Jerusalem there. And so in other words, what we're going to read is a duet. This is a duet love song, okay? Bet- a dialogue between two, two people. King Solomon and this peasant girl he romances and takes us his wife. And the third voice in the song, do you see it there? Is from her friends who provide commentary on the relationship. Because as any guy knows, when you date a woman, you get all her friends too. (laughs) All 147 of them, and they all like to give a commentary on it. So this is kind of like a Greek chorus. So three people speaking, the lover, King Solomon, the beloved, the Jewish peasant girl, and the friends. So that's you guys. You guys get to play the chorus, okay? And as the song starts out, we see things are heating up, right? Start at verse 1. It says, Solomon's song of songs. Verse 2, it says, let him kiss me. With the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. And we're going to stop right there because all of a sudden it's a surprise. Notice who's speaking first. What's the title say? Who's speaking? The be- she does. In this biblical encounter, it's the woman who is the initiator. And what does she say? She's like, come on over here and kiss me, big boy, right? And right, you guys are just like, all right, I am totally taking notes today, right? (laughs) Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is what? More delightful than wine. So in other words, as we peer in the window on the couch of these two lovers, they got something going on here. There are two lovebirds on the couch. They got a bottle of wine between them. Guys, bottle of wine, not box of wine. Uh, maybe it's a, maybe it's a shard, a nice, uh, Shiraz, never zin. But, but they got something going on here. Look at verse three. It says, pleasing is the fragrance of your perfume. Your name is like perfume poured out. So in other words, they're close in together. They are close enough to smell. And she's like, mm, you smell good. Oh, no wonder all the maidens love you. A little nuzzling on the couch. And then she says, verse four, take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. Translation. Take me to bed or lose me forever. You remember that one? That's literally the translation. (laughs) And some of you are like, what translation are you reading there? I'm serious. I know because it's a little bit awkward. It's like we're looking in on something like private between two people. Something intimate. Something romantic. No wonder people don't read this. I mean, I mean, when somebody says, baby, I want to kiss you with the kisses of my mouth for your love is more delightful than cherry wine. I mean, what kind of song are you thinking of? Literally. I mean, think about that. Come on. All our kisses. Put your hands together. You know it. Come on. Come on. You know it? Yeah. church what are you people doing what do you think this is i mean come on but literally guys this is how the song starts and no wonder no one wants to touch it because there's this heated exchange between a man and his wife let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is more delightful than wine there's kisses there's wine there's a little barry white (laughs) and you know what the big point is the first point is this biblical love according to scripture should be intoxicating. 
heady, a joyous affair. I mean in the metaphorical sense. Uh, uh, un, unadulterated, unashamed, a little bit awkward. Like we just had that awkward moment. <laughs> yeah? But intoxicating. That's how God designed it. And literally, that's what this is. This is an idealized portrait of the romance in electric relationship between a husband and wife. Married men, question for you. Do you remember back what first intoxicated you about your spouse? Married men, do you remember? Husbands, think about that right now. What first intoxicated you about your spouse? And some of you guys are like, uh, you know, wow. Ooh, that goes, all right. I actually can't remember that well. I think I was intoxicated myself at the time. Uh, you know, they, they, that's a question actually for married couples. Does anything about your spouse still intoxicate you? Still cause those butterflies? Make you want to pour a little bit of cherry wine and put on some Barry White, read the Song of Solomon. I remember when I first felt that spark, those feelings for my wife, Colleen. It was, some of you guys know, I've told you the story. We met out at Wheaton College and uh, actually met in our freshman writing class together. And uh, when we were at first day of class, I was sitting there and I remember when she walked in, I will never forget that day. Because I am an East Coast guy and Wheaton, as I told you guys, is, is preppy kind of Midwest. But Colleen grew up in Brooklyn. She was a city girl. So when Colleen walked into that classroom, tan skin, hair teased out to here, the smell of Aquanet wafting through the classroom, you know, like any good New Jersey boy, I was just like, home, you know? This is a picture of our first date together, actually. On Halloween, we went out. I was Elvis. She wore my hockey jersey. We went out to dinner. We carved a pumpkin together in the cornfield. That's how it started for us. And I remember being so nervous, wanting everything to be just right, right? I mean, beautiful girl, smelled good. Man, I was all over that. Still am all over that, right? She's actually right here. And it may feel a little awkward, but the portrait we're given here, right out of the gate, the scripture is intended to say, biblical love should be intoxicating. What intoxicates you about your spouse? Or has it been some time? Since you actually felt those sparks. I mean, maybe you're years into the journey and you're in a rut. You're like, electricity, the only electricity I feel for him is the chair I want him to sit in, right? Shake that thought. Stick with me, Barry White. Let's, let's decode what's going on here. This is what her friends do in verse 4. This is your turn. You're the chorus. The woman's friends chime in here. Big, loud voice. Ready? Let's read it together. We rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. How right they are. To adore you. In other words, her friends are like, yeah, how romantic this is. Oh, I love that. That's literally what's going on here, okay? And again, this is an idealized picture of what relationships can be when they're actually approached God's way. Biblical love can be intoxicating. But my question is this. What is it that at first attracted these two? For that, we actually have to hit the rewind button and go to verse 5. Would you look at this? Song of Songs was not written in chronological order. In some ways, it's kind of like this. it's on random shuffle, Okay. But this is like a movie, and it's like, this is how it starts, this romantic scene between two lovers. But then it goes to a flashback for how the relationship started. And singles, don't check out, because this is where it gets very interesting. The rest of the song tells the story of their hookup. In other words, their, their dating, their courtship, what first brought them together. So what was it that Solomon saw in this, this, this peasant girl? What attracted his attention? Was she tan, like Colleen? Apparently so. Read on, verse 5 says this. 
Dark am I, yet lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of Cater, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Um, Cater was actually a Bedouin tribe where actually the tents were made out of black sheep's wool. And the curtain in Solomon's palace was actually a deep shade of purple. So you get the point. He's, he's like, the girl had a very dark complexion. She was tan, maybe actually even sunburned. And some of you guys are like, mm-hmm, that's what I'm talking about. A bronze hottie. Don't go there. Here's why. This was a problem. See, being tan or dark was not a beauty mark in this culture. That's why she actually says in verse 6, look what she says. She says what? Don't stare at me because I'm dark, because I'm darkened by the sun. Why? Why would it have been shameful to have dark skin in that culture? I mean, because being tan meant one thing. You worked outside, you didn't have a man to take care of you, and you were poor and had nobody. So you had to fend for yourself. Very interesting here because rich women in those days actually stayed inside the palace. They were either protected by their father or they were provided for by their husband and they had ivory skin. And they actually were not thin, they were rather plump. In other words, they were well fed. Think about that. The two beauty marks of Solomon's day were pasty and plump. If you were tan and skinny, people went, oh, oh, how, oh, avert my eyes. It meant you were poor and malnourished, a shame. Fast forward 3,000 years. My, how things change, don't they? I mean, literally, right? It's the reverse. Now, nowadays, we're like, oh, no, no, don't stare at me. It's winter. I'm so pale. I got to go to LBI. We live in New Jersey. It's like the capital of the fake bake. So we don't get any of this. But this ancient culture had very different marks of beauty. And right away, we see that this young girl is insecure about her appearance. Don't stare at me because I'm dark, because I'm darkened by the sun. In other words, I don't look like them. I, I, don't, I don't meet the standards of beauty of the culture all around me. Any women here relate to this? Like, like you look in the mirror and you don't like what you see. Because, because our culture says that appearance is the singular source of attraction. That's what the world says. And she's like, I don't look like a Barbie doll. I don't look like these women. She's not just insecure about her appearance. If you look at verse 6, look at it. She's also insecure about her background. Look what she says. She goes, my mother's sons were what? Angry with me. It made me take care of the vineyards. In my own vineyard, I have what? Neglected. It's significant that she says, my mother's sons. In other words, she is a working girl without a dad. She was raised by a single mom. So she is poor. She is fatherless. She is secure about, insecure about her physical appearance. And apparently her family was abusive, right? It says her brothers are angry and forced her to work the vineyards, which they were probably leasing from, from King Solomon. So when Solomon rolls up in his chariot, because he's out visiting his vineyards, all her insecurities begin to bubble to the surface. I'm not beautiful. My family's dysfunctional. I, I gotta work for myself. My own vineyard, I've what? I've neglected. And so right away, this song tells us something else. See, although it is an idealized portrait of a romance, it deals with very real people. Everyday, not perfect people, but flawed ones with hurts and insecurities all their own. And that's what I, one of the things I love about the Bible, because it talks about real everyday people who struggle with real everyday problems. I mean, biblical love can be intoxicating, but the reality is this. There are thousands of insecurities and hurts that threaten any budding relationship from actually taking root, Yeah. I mean, we all have things about ourselves we'd like to change. The problem comes when we draw our beauty marks from the culture around us. And as Solomon approaches this girl, take a look at this. She looks at the women around her 
And she wonders aloud in verse 7. She says, tell me, you whom I love, you who graze your flocks and where you rest your sheep at midday, why should I be like a veiled woman besides the flocks of your friends? She's like, compared to the women around me, I don't look like them. I'm not Brittany, I'm not Paris, I'm not Angelina. I can't compare. Why should I be like a veiled woman besides the flocks of your friends? And this, folks... It's a sad snapshot to start with, but it's actually reflective of so many women and men, in fact, of our day. See, when we adopt the impossible beauty marks, the ridiculous emphasis that our world places on physical appearance as the singular source of attraction, it is corrosive. Case in point, one of the most visited websites of the past five years, www.hotornot.com. How many of you have seen this? How many of you will not admit you have seen this? Okay, uh, I kid you not, if you have seen this site, uh, Complete Strangers, basically, it's a very simple premise. They upload their photo, and everyone else gets to rank them on a scale of 1 to 10. 1 being fizzle, 10 being sizzle. And uh, quite honestly, when I came across this, I was so outraged by uh, this crude display of superficiality, I decided to check it out for myself. And, uh, you know, research uh, for, the, for the series. So, I, I mean, I figured women have enough to deal with. Why not post a few pictures of some of the men of Liquid for ranking? You know, kind of, we have some good-looking guys here. Why not kind of run that up the, uh, the flagpole and see who salutes? Anyone interested in the results? You want, want to see this? Okay, I thought, let's start with my buddy, my amigo, my partner in ministry, Pastor Tom, right, of a Morristown campus. Tom actually garnered a respectful 8.0. Can we hear it for Tom? What I love is it actually says you are hotter than 78% of men on this site. I thought that was nice that they kind of round up. I thought that's really, really nice. Coming in second, just a few percentage points above, was Pastor Mike, 8.3. And I thought that was kind of totally unfair because Mike posed next to this like stack of rocks that makes him taller than he even really is in real life. And I think he got his Tara, his wife, and, and three little girls to like, you know, double click, just shameless, stuff the ballot box. But taking the prize home is our apparently hot director of worship in New Brunswick, Jens Madsen, who garnered an impressive 9.1. And, and I saw that and I was like, oh, all the ladies, right? I mean, totally unfair advantage. I think we know what that was about. The golden mane. I mean, no guy, no dude's going to vote for him and all the women are jealous. But good for you, Jens. Great job. The point is, folks, when www.hotornot.com gets 10 million votes in a single day, according to the New York Times. That is a pretty good indicator of just how high and distorted a premium our world places on physical appearance as the singular basis for attraction. And you know what? There are many of us who today, here in this room, who have bought that value system hook, line, and sinker. Literally. And in Solomon's song, guess what? Insecurity is the first issue that the couple faces. This woman is acutely aware of her physical flaws, and, and when they meet, the first thing she says is, don't, 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 don't look at me. I'm, I'm not beautiful. My skin's bad. My, my vineyard's neglected. I don't match the, the beauty marks of the culture. And what does King Solomon say to her? Remember, Solomon is the wisest man of all time. What does he respond? Look at verse 9. This is magic. First words out of his mouth. What does he tell this girl? He says, I liken you, my darling, to a mare. Harnessed to one of the chariots of Pharaoh. In other words, don't feel insecure, sweetheart. In my eyes, you look like a horse. What? Something lost in translation there a little bit. Yeah, obviously, a little something's lost there. Solomon is paying her a huge compliment. See, in ancient Egypt, Pharaoh's chariot was driven by a team of exquisite white horses, and there was always 
One flawless mare who would lead the entire team. She was considered the crown jewel announcing Pharaoh's arrival. And so Solomon looks at this woman, listens to all her insecurities, and he shakes his head. He says, no, 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 not in my eyes, you aren't. In my eyes, you are the most beautiful creature I have ever seen. You drive my chariot. In a very real way. It sounded like Michael Scott there. That's what she said. No, that's the, the sex is God. Okay, here we go. This raises a good question. What does Solomon see in this woman? Because it's like, well, is he just being kind here? Or is he kind of blowing smoke? Or, or does he see something that others don't? Is, is there something else here that attracts his attention? Track with me here. The king of Israel is rolling in his chariot through vineyards, and he spies this young girl hard at work in the fields, supporting her family. She is serving under the hot sun without fanfare, She serves faithfully day after day in the king's vineyard. Folks, from whatever culture you are from, that is a powerful picture of somebody with character, with a servant's heart. The interesting thing is this, guys. Solomon stops his chariot. It attracts his attention. And the third movement of their relationship is this. He's interested, actually, in her character. His chariot skids to a halt because he sees something that runs much deeper than surface beauty. And looking behind her external beauty marks to something interior, something deeper that will not fade. I mean, how do we know this is what Solomon's looking for here? Again, Solomon was considered the wisest man in civilization. He wrote over 3,000 proverbs in addition to those 1,000 love songs. Wise sayings, 3,000 proverbs. And in Proverbs 31.10, he wrote this. He said, a wife of noble what? Of noble character who can find she is worth far more than rubies that word character is interesting our word english word character actually comes from the greek word kerazzo that refers to a metal hammer used to chisel or engrave something in other words character refers to a different kind of beauty mark that has been etched so deeply into a person's soul that it is now permanent it's part of who they are In other words, it's a person of integrity who who actually acts the same in both public and private, even when no one's looking. It's a person of honesty, a willingness to be real, warts and all, in spite of the fear of being rejected. And it's a person who has a servant's heart, a deep heart for the things of God, not just the things of this world. In fact, in many ways, it is oblivious to the world's notions of beauty and success. In fact... It's what Peter is referring to when he wrote in the third chapter of his first epistle. He said, your beauty should not come from what? Outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your what? Your inner self, your carazzo, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of what? Great worth in God's sight. You see? Spiritual character always has its eyes set on what the true king sees. It actually hungers for God's stamp of approval and the opinions of the world are secondary. Let me ask a very simple question of all the single folks at our campuses. What exactly are you looking for as you scan through the crowd of potential mates? What are you looking for? What attracts you? What sends sparks? What what captures your hearts? Be honest. If you bought the world's vision of, of, of beauty marks, our culture, you, you might be looking for a toned body, the right smile, six-pack of abs, the right set of eyes, and you know what? 
Keep waiting. You guys, you guys, let's just be honest. We're all the same here. I mean, I hold up the women's magazine, but you know, you're like, oh, I'm kind of waiting, Tim. Wait, you know, I'm waiting for her to walk into church. You know, uh, the Victoria's Secret model who just loves the Lord. You know, just, she, well, yeah, she'll be here next week. She's leading uh, worship on the internet campus, all right? You'll see her. Or ladies, you're waiting for Mr. Wright, who has the right job, the right size chariot, lives in the right palace. The truth of Solomon's song is that eternal love, authentic love, biblical love, a love actually worth giving your life to, only happens when carazzo, character, trumps beauty. When we see prospective mates with God's glasses and we see and value what he values, carazzo, the beauty marks of the soul. Now understand something here. I am not saying... That physical beauty is not a big part of romantic attraction. Uh, not at all. That's the sexist, gross perspective that I'm talking about. Again, I grew up in a church <laughs> where you didn't acknowledge that you were attracted to, to anything or anyone beautiful. We're all ugly. We're all asexual. No, no one can. That's not what Solomon is saying here. You're actually going to see later, the love song is actually a highly sensuous one because God is a God of beauty. He, he made incredibly beautiful things, the Grand Canyon. He made beautiful people, beautiful women. And as a creator, you know what? He hardwired us to be sensory people, turned on by physical attributes. You're going to see next week, you're going to see, he's going to be like, oh, the smell of her skin. And she's like, the sound of his voice is like dripping myrrh. This song gets very erotic and very sensual. And it shows, you know what? Physical beauty is an important aspect of attraction. It's just not all there is. That's the point. That's what Solomon says in verses 10 and 11. Look at this. Look what he says to her. He says, your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make you earrings of gold studded with silver. In other words, he's like, you beautiful thing. And I mean inwardly beautiful. We, we can take care of all the glitz and the glam later. If you're feeling insecure, we can go to Tiffany's and get you some bling, okay? We'll get you some gold earrings. But that's not what's most important to me. This trumps it. You, in your natural, unguarded state, without the jewelry, without the makeup, without all that, working in the fields of the king, are the most beautiful creature I have ever, ever seen. Not in a contrived, plastic, Barbie doll way. But your carazzo, what's inside, has brought my chariot to a halt. I want to talk to you. In other words, if you want a firm foundation um, for a relationship that goes the distance in God's eyes, inner character must always trump external appearance. And I know what some of you are saying right now. You're like, um, that's very easy for you to say, Tim, because... Uh, you have a haughty wife, and she loves Jesus too. And you know what? You're right. I got the complete package. Let's just acknowledge this. Uh, God has blessed me with Colleen, who is by far the most gorgeous woman in our entire church. And, and if you want to argue that, by the way, I will see you in the foyer afterwards. I will drop you like a bag of wet cement. In a very, in a Christ-like way, of course, right? I'm serious. I mean, I mean, let, let me tell you something about my initial attraction to my wife, Colleen. Uh, I told you when she walked into that freshman writing class, that, that was, forget it. Um, those were the days she was wearing neon umbro shorts. Do you remember those? 
those like soccer shorts and they were like neon and, and she must have been to the beach or outside all summer. I think she was on vacation in Puerto Rico and she came back and she had the most gorgeous tan legs I had ever seen and literally, you know, I'm like 18, 19 years old and I'm sitting in the back of the class and I'm like trying to like take notes and all I could just be going is like, Mmm, oh, silky, smooth, want to touch, you know? That's how it started. So you know what? Physical attraction is an important part of our story or any romantic relationship that has its sights set on marriage. But that's not what made me decide Colleen was marriage material. It's like a window into the carrazzo. See, when I got up the courage to ask her out on a date, I discovered another detail about my wife. I remember calling her up. I finally got the courage. I, I called her. I said, hey, this is uh, Tim from writing class. I was wondering if, uh, if you uh, were busy on Friday night. I was real nervous. <laughs> and she said, uh, yeah. Oh, hi, Tim. I'm really sure. Actually, I am. I am busy. I said, oh, okay, right. Uh, uh, how about next Friday? And she goes, oh, I'm busy then too. And I was like, wow, foul ball again. Uh, how about the Friday after that? She said, you know what? I'm booked. Actually, every Friday is booked. And I was so nervous, I, I, you know, like, I'm just already calling. I'm just like, oh, oh, okay, no problem. I think I threw up in my mouth a little bit. But she was like, no, 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 no. She goes, I mean, I'd like to go out. She goes, but I tutor kids on Friday nights. And I, and I thought, oh, okay. She said, yeah, do you want to come? We can get dinner before or something like that. And I said, isn't that cute? You know, images of little toddlers tutoring. So uh, when we went to the dining hall before her tutoring that Friday night, imagine my surprise when I walked her to the van that transported her and five other girls to the Illinois Maximum Security Penal Facility for young adult women in Naperville. I was like, what the? She goes, yeah. She goes, I spend my Friday nights uh, in jail. It's <laughs> like, really? Yeah. She goes, we go there. I go, she goes, I tutor and I counsel, uh, you know, a half dozen young women who, who are incarcerated. And all I could think at that moment was that I had devoted most of my time playing Xbox for the first year of college. And here's this girl giving her Friday nights to spend all of it with people who had wrecked their life and couldn't possibly pay her back. And she, she went there to simply love on them. And every Friday night she'd go to this prison and she'd have her hair in a scrunchie and she'd have her sweatpants on. And I began to realize it was God redeeming Colleen's past. She was actually raised by a single mom. Did not have a lot of money. In fact, would always come home to an empty house every day. Saw a lot of bad stuff before Christ came in. Literally saved her mom and Colleen gave her life to Christ at the age of 12. And she said to me, she said, if, they, if these girls just had someone there for them, a consistent presence, I just know God could change their whole life. And let me tell you something. That became a real turn on for me. Because at that point in my life, I had a major compassion deficit. My, my whole church was whole internally focused about people in here, everyone else going to hell, and we're, we're all in here in a little holy huddle. Yeah, it was the butter legs that first got my attention, like a mook. But it was the window into something deeper, something eternal about my wife's carazzo, her character, her heart for the least of these, the oppressed, the forgotten. And over sophomore year, as I went with her to the prison, I discovered something much greater than her, her butter legs. That internal beauty mark of a servant's heart, the compassion I remember thinking, that's the kind of woman I could imagine spending my life with. That's the kind of woman I could imagine having children with. And, and, and she has something I don't, but really need and really want. I was such an immature, self-absorbed boy at that time. And I, I definitely married up. And uh, guess what? Over time, it became the driving attraction for me. 
Over the course of that marriage, as I, as that part of her heart, that carazzo, that has had a sanctifying effect on my own heart. It began chiseling into it. Colleen has been my greatest teacher about God's grace and compassion for people who have nothing. She has helped dig the well in my heart with godly compassion. And did you see this? Godly attraction embraces both the physical beauty and the inner spiritual character, but it must prioritize that carazzo if you want the foundation for a relationship that will actually last and deepen over time. That's how this love song starts. With a picture of love that is intoxicating, but the relationship is threatened by insecurities until the Solomon sees the young girl at work serving faithfully in the fields of the king and his heart elevates character over style. Single folks, what's on your list? I mean, we all, we all have lists. If the top three things on your list are, well, my list, let's see, it's very holy. Um, must be at least 5'9", must have uh, blonde hair, uh, must be a certain body type. You may be missing out on the love of your life. I'm telling you that today. You want to marry a Barbie? A Ken? Why? Why? You've bought the world's standards. That's why Solomon goes on to say in Proverbs 31.30, he says, Charm is what? Deceptive. And beauty is fleeting. But a woman who what? Fears the Lord is to be praised. In other words, when you take away the hot or not factor, the sculpted bod, the jewelry, the makeup gets all scrubbed off, and you see a person's heart. What do you see? What are you looking for? Godly character is the foundation of any relationship. It's what Christ modeled to us. Isaiah actually says of Jesus, the true king, he said, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing about his appearance that we should desire him. And yet he gave his life to win his bride. And in the process, he won our heart. Jesus' model of attraction looks like this. I'm elevated in your eyes when I stoop to serve and wash your dirty feet with a towel and a basin. That's love. And that's where true security in a relationship comes from because it's the security of knowing that, you know what, when and if things fall to pieces, things fade, I get sick, the kids go off the rails or some other great tragedy in our family's life, I lose all my hair. Colleen will be by my side. Because she has the internal resources and her heart is bent towards eternal things. It's ironic because uh, I, am, I am still enchanted by Colleen's beauty. And, uh, but I know, I understand. I understand it's got a shelf life. She's been through two pregnancies. She's, we're now having those kind of conversations. She's like, Tim, it's, I just, there's things happening to me that I never dreamed of. This is sagging. This is looser. And you know what the funny thing? In our 10 years of marriage, she has grown in beauty in my eyes. And I'm not just saying that so I can be rewarded tonight. <laughs> the truth is, I find you more beautiful today than I did 20 years ago in that classroom. And when I look at her and see the impact, my beloved's carazzo, her spiritual character over time, it draws out physical beauty as well. Case in, case in point, self-disclosure, Okay, these for me, okay? Early in marriage, I was kind of a Puritan. I always had a towel around my waist and, and pictures of me sucking in my stomach. And a few years ago, Colleen, uh, she came into the bathroom while I wasn't washing. I had just been out of a shower. Don't go there. Just we're in church. Holy moment. And I was doing this in the mirror, like going like, oh gosh, what is that? And she just stood at the door and didn't even let me know she was there. 
And literally, I was like, look at this. And I was just like, oh, oh, geez, you know, towel up and everything. And she came in behind me and she put her arms around me. She goes, no, 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 don't. And she kind of grabbed me and she just goes, I love that about you. She goes, that gives me something to hold on to. And I remember being a little surprised, a little bit embarrassed, trying to cover up and, 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 and capture that moment. To be a man and wife walking together through life, naked and flawed and unashamed. There are moments in our marriage where I feel like we take steps back to Eden. Things aren't perfect. But we have these moments in the garden where we taste something of God's unconditional love and acceptance, flaws and all. And the man and the woman were naked and they felt what? No shame. Can you imagine that? Where your worst insecurity becomes a source of attraction in your spouse. I mean, listen up, singles. Marriage, marriage is not about finding a hot body that heats you up. It's mostly about getting wrinkled together. That's what marriage is. This summer, I down, down the Jersey Shore, I saw this couple on a boardwalk. They must have been in their 70s, and they were holding hands, and it was the cutest thing. The guy had a pot belly, and he was growing, growing bald. And he was wearing this T-shirt that said, it's not a bald spot. It's a solar panel for a sex machine. I love that. I love it. 70. <laughs> we have such modest goals for love and marriage. Like if I can find somebody who won't notice all my flaws. Imagine them not just, just accepting your flaws, but celebrating them. Looking at all you're insecure about and actually saying, I love that about you. You are radiant. You're a beauty in my eyes. Because I'm not just looking on the surface, but behind it, your heart, your carazzo, I value most. Physical beauty fades. Solomon understood that. He's the wisest man in the Bible, and who does he pick? The pimped out dancers in his palace? Nope. The humble peasant girl who's serving faithfully in the fields of the king. You're the mayor of Pharaoh in my eyes. I'm seeing deeper. What effect does his sweet words have on this woman? Let's just say things get a little hot. And for that, you're going to have to come back next week for part two. Uh, And tonight, you got homework. We got homework all throughout the series. Married couples, you have homework tonight. I'll listen up. All married couples all over campuses, I want you to go home tonight. and, uh, And when you get into bed, follow. Before you go to sleep, here's what I want you to do. You each take a turn and you put your hand on the other, on your spouse's face. And I want you to tell your spouse one thing that intoxicates you about their character. Can you think of something? Don't just put the moves on. This isn't like, hold her, hold her guys. Just, can you think? The way you're patient with our children, I could never do that. You go to work every day faithfully without complaining, never a bad word. I love you for that. Tell them one. And then I want you to describe one aspect of their physical beauty that you still find irresistible. And just see where that leads, okay? But just maybe, maybe you take out the Bible, maybe you read a little, I don't know, maybe some prayer, whatever that is. Okay, if you're in a dating relationship, your homework, I want you to think of your boyfriend or your girlfriend, you ask yourself, what is it about their inner carazzo, their, their inner beauty that makes you want to be with them? Notice it's a very different question than, um, hey, what do we have in common? Oh, we like the same music. No. What about their eternal soul before God, their, their unfading beauty, their integrity? If you can't think of anything, problem, red flag. You may want to reevaluate your current relationship, but you discuss that, see where God guides you. And then finally, if you are single, you are searching for that special someone, um, my question is this, do you have a a silhouette of what they look like in your mind? No silhouette is, it's like kind of black, like not filled in there. The guy or the girl you want to marry, and I don't mean, no, five, seven, blue eyes, this body type. Yeah, I want a man who is patient and forgiving, because I can be so critical and judgmental at times. 
I need a man of worth who's not flashy, who, who, saves, who serves faithfully. Spiritual characteristic. What's your spiritual silhouette look like singles? Do you have one? We have a lot of good-looking folks at Liquid, but don't fall for it. Don't fall for it. Take Solomon's advice. Find a guy or a girl who serves behind the scenes, who isn't all up front trying to be spectacular and be seen, and you nurture them, and they will love you for it, and you will build a relationship that will not crumble or fade over time. A man, a woman of noble character, who can find, take it from Solomon, he or she, worth far more than rubies. Let's pray together. All of our campuses bow our heads. Jesus, we thank you for relationships. We thank you that you have authored the ultimate love story and you're coming for us. We are your bride, Father, and you have come for us. You have fought for us. You have laid down your life for us. And because of that, Father, we can be redeemed and we can love one another, not as the world loves, Father, but with a godly love, a brotherly love, a, a love, Lord, that is actually eternal. And so I pray right now, Father, for all the married couples in our church watching online, Lord. I pray that you'll revive marriages. You'll open up conversations and gateways of communication that have been shut for a while. I pray for the single people, Father, right now. Give them hope, Lord. Breathe life into them, Father. Blow out any any bitterness. Blow out any false eyes, Lord, that would have them evaluate one another in the world's prism. But give us eyes to be men and women of God, not focused on finding or Mr. or Mrs. Wright, but becoming Mr. and Mrs. Wright. I pray you'll do that, Father, in the power of your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all of our campuses, we said it together. Amen.